0: Welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest today on Attendance Bias is sound engineer, fish.net contributor, and the man responsible for recent remastering of previously unreleased fish recordings, Jeff Goldberg. Jeff chose to discuss the legendary fish show from July 8, 1994 at Great Woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts. If you've been paying attention to Fish.net or just the Fish.net blog over the past few years, you may have noticed that every once in a while, the site announces the release of an archival show that was previously uncirculated and unavailable to fans. To be clear, these are separate from the band's official releases. But for example, the most recent release, at least at the time of this recording, is the show from April 9th, 1990 at the Fly Me to the Moon Saloon in Telluride, Colorado. If you've listened to that show, a link to which is posted in today's show notes, you've heard Jeff's audio expertise. I've known Jeff for a while through an online fish message board, and I've always been impressed with not only his expansive knowledge of fish, I've also been impressed with his ability to act as an audio archaeologist. He's been able to find recordings, artifacts, basically, whether he discovered them or if they were just handed to him but he's been able to clean them up and then present it to the public. I was so curious about the nuts and bolts of remastering a poor quality tape. I was also curious about what it felt like to be one of just a few people to hear a show that is mostly unknown to the public at large. And on a personal level, I wanted to know more about his background as a fish fan, since he's such an expert at the technical aspects and a big gearhead when it comes to fish. More than that, I was thrilled that Jeff picked the show from Greatwoods. Although it's a pretty high-profile show, as you'll hear me mention, it was one of the first shows I ever had on tape. Very few guests, at least to this point, on attendance bias, have brought up anything really directly related to Gamehenge. So Jeff and I relished an opportunity to talk about the band's formative rock opera. So let's join Jeff Goldberg to hear about July 8th, 1994 at Greatwoods.
1: Let's meet today's guest.
0: Jeff Goldberg, thanks so much for being on Attendance Bias. How are you? I am great.
1: Thank you. How My yourself? pleasure.
0: I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to talk about today's show for many reasons. I'm also excited to talk about your background as an audio engineer. because, Well, altogether, I feel like some of this is interrelated because this show, today's show, which is July 8th, 1994 at Great Woods, in Mansfield, Massachusetts. This is one of the first tapes I ever collected. I have a feeling that a lot of listeners who have been around for a while may have a similar experience. Not only that, but it's a Gamehenge show. Uh, more people are probably familiar with it due to the somewhat recent broadcast of it of Dinner and a Movie. And after Gamehenge, there's a monster second set. And I'm just genuinely curious about what it's like for someone to discover and then work through a show that no one has heard before. So there's a lot going on in my head. (laughs) I'm excited to talk about it. Let's geek out, man. Yeah, let's do it. So to start off, you grew up in, I want to make sure I pronounce this right. I know that outsiders from Massachusetts have a bad habit of mispronouncing towns. Is it Hingham, Massachusetts? Yes. Hingham. Hingham. all right, I got it right, uh, which is outside of Boston. You, we talked earlier, you talked about your first musical influences, which was classic rock, which was also similar to me growing up, which was very garden variety, classic rock stuff. But before we get into your life as an engineer, let's talk about your life as a fish head. How was fish introduced into your world, Jeff? Who were we talking to?
1: It was the early 90s, and... um See, so I had just finished junior high and I was about to start high school and I ended up going away to a boarding school in Connecticut. It was a pretty, you know, it was pretty kind of crunchy, hippie-ish type of a school, one of those places. So uh immediately right off the bat, there were, I, I was exposed to, uh, now you'd call them jam band type music, but it was just, you know, music that, um. Had a, had a focus on the live playing and, and on the improv, improv and stuff like that. So, and
0: what year was this, just so we have a sense of context? 92. Okay, so like sort of the beginning of Horde Tour, like blues travel, exactly. like that kind of...
1: Okay. Exactly, actually. And um, um, so let's see. I have two older brothers. One of them uh, also was into fish for a long period of time. He was first. And so... I was going off to high school. He was going off to college. It was long enough ago, and the internet was young enough, that um, kind of tech t- techno geeks and early adopters like myself and, and like my brother at the time, who got involved in the internet early before it became a, a mainstream thing, got involved in message boards and uh, rec.music.fish. Right, RMP. RMP. Yeah, which was, you know, the original incarnation of what Fishnet is now, which at the end of the day, it was just a bulletin board system where you could post And My brother, Mark, got involved in that. And he, he sort of became friends with a lot of the people who ran the show there. And he ended up getting involved in the administration there. And he kind of, um, he was one of the, like, Fishnet higher ups for a while. So he, when we, when I went back for break he was introducing me to fish. He was like, Hey, check this out. And he sat down he played Junta for me. And, and so then that, that was my first exposure to it. He right off the bat, got me involved with, with the live tapes, you know, and I, at the time was, I liked them, but I was more into the albums at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think 14 and I just, uh, I remember Rift got released though, uh, which was 1993
0: i think right
1: yeah it was it it was in the i think it was february of 93 that was my freshman uh, yeah that was my freshman year and so i was already into them enough to get the album when it came out like waited in line at tower records and <laughs> did that whole thing and I, it was, i'm curious it just went from there
0: i'm sorry to cut you off but if um because my my um my experience with Fish was a couple years later of me getting into them. Mine was closer to 1996. So, by about three or four years later, I was also brought up on a, a steady diet of classic rock. And for me, what the connective tissue for Fish was kind of the who mixed with uh, John Fishman's arena rock style drumming in 1995 when they were starting to transition mm-hmm. to big rock venues. Like when I saw that they covered Quadrophenia all of a sudden it was like, okay, the world has now converged and I need to transition from uh, The Who, which I love them so much, but they're kind of looking back kind of monotonous in terms of their style once they really got going in the late 60s. But Fish was The Who plus every other type of genre you could ever think of. Were there any classic rock bands for you that – provided some sort of connective tissue to make this larger leap into a more diverse
1: band. My two favorites at the time were rush and pink Floyd. And I mean, and those are, they're both progressive enough bands and in some of their eras, uh, in terms of musical composition, excuse me. And, um, a focus on longer written instrumental parts. I had been playing piano since I was really young. So I I had been a musician for a long time and I was already, I had started to play guitar already. And so there was a, there was a lot of influence in what I was listening to and to what I was learning to play. And that really kind of hit the nail on the head for me is when I was, it just so happened to coincide when I was learning guitar. And so the guitar parts coming from Trey really spoke to me and um, you know, before Rift came out, my, it was for me, it was, I was listening to Junta and, and picture and Hector. and picture and actor is obviously like a big kind of smorgasbord of different styles. And that is what turned me on to the fact that these guys could sing, they could do all these different styles. They were kind of goofy, but serious musicians at the same time. And, and I think that was the hook for me.
0: Do you remember your first show?
1: Yeah, I yeah do. what was
0: it? And what do you remember from it?
1: It was, it was, um, later that year, my freshman year, it was the university of Hartford. It was four, it was April 30th, 93. And it was at the, the, I think it was called the campus center. It was at at university of Hartford and it was a pretty small show. It was like in a gym basically, and it had bleachers on the sides and like those really cheap <laughs> tied together chairs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I totally remember the show. And the thing, the thing that was cool is I had already been listening to, I had already been listening to them for a couple, you know, for a year or two. And so I knew a lot of the songs already and Rift, as I, as I mentioned earlier, had just come out a couple months before and I had been like just wearing that thing out. And, and so, because it was sort of a Rift tour They were going and I got a lot of songs that I knew. And so that, you know, I think that played into a lot of the immediate live live band hooked. I was really impressed by how well they played the songs from the album and they really sounded just like the album, except for better. And so finally I got what my brother was talking about
0: to fast forward all the way to 2021 or whenever the last time you saw them was, obviously it wasn't 2021 as we're recording this in April. Do you still feel that way as a fan to you? Is it still
1: important that they nail the composed sections? Yes. And it's funny too, cause it's, um, that was a huge detractor for me for a long time. I mean, it t- it, it wiped out, it wiped 2.0 off the map for me, basically. <laughs> You know, I, I think that Trey's story is, is remarkable, you know, in terms of his recovery and, and all that, you know, and how he basically had to relearn the entire catalog. And, you know, but at the same time, he had to relearn the entire catalog and it's never quite been the same. And when I say it's never quite been the same, the reason I say that is because the band's accuracy with things like the composed sections and attention to detail of those things is part of what attracted me to them.
0: I think a lot of fans who got into the band in the early or mid nineties feel similarly to, to the way you're describing. I sometimes get that way, but when I'm at the show, I won't say I don't care because a botched song is a botched song and it does make me, you know, it does give me goosebumps in not the best way, you know, as my students would say, you know, cringe, but at the same time, it's, it's easily forgivable when you're there, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Do you do you feel similarly or do you
1: disagree? So it, as I was saying, it, it depends on where the error occurs and what the context is of it. And, you know, so for what I was saying was, is the I had given Trey a pass basically on anything that I heard and I, I would hear every <laughs> I thought that I would hear every error that that was played because it would just being a person that was learning guitar and being kind of persnickety in the way that I am about sound and stuff. I would just, I would hear if there was an error in the composed section and and whatever. And, and it was fine until he had to start over. Yeah. Yeah. And And where, where was that again? It was at the the garden. It was at fleet center. I think it was called at the time. Yeah. The Boston garden, not Madison's pretty sure it was at the 20th anniversary show. I can't remember which it was, but it was like he had to stop you enjoy myself and start over because it was like he'd butchered it so badly. And I couldn't believe it. It was like a, that was the beginning of the end for me mm. in terms of the uh, faith that they would nail stuff.
0: And you brought up a few times how you could be persnickety and how into sound you are and how when you grew up, you were learning to play instruments. Let's dive into that a little bit about your background as a sound engineer and how you eventually kind of became this go-to person on fish.net and just in the community to release previously uncirculated material. So how did you first get into the business or just the background of being a sound engineer?
1: Well, I've always been into sound music. I think it started because my mother was also a school teacher and she she played piano and she was musical. So she Being a school teacher, she wanted to expose her kids to every type of extracurricular activity to see what it was that we took an interest in and, you know, different sports and different swimming lessons and this and that and the other thing. But because she played the piano and she was a school teacher and she had a a strong belief that people who played piano at a very young age had more skills in other areas later in life, math and, and other things like that, which in retrospect, I completely agree with. She told me I thank her and I have multiple times. <laughs> and so it just becomes sort of part of your being. And whether that was coincidental um, or cause and effect reason, I now have what's called synesthetic hearing, which means that when I hear sounds, I see colors in my head, which it helped me a lot through music classes and, and things like that. But it, it, it makes listening to music and being a sound engineer a very interesting thing to do.
0: I would imagine fish shows must be
1: super fun for you. (laughs) You know, Corona has got nothing on your own head. I would imagine. Kind of. I mean, like the, the light shows are great for me because they're very similar to what I experience in my head. And how did this become
0: a career for you? How did it turn from being four years old and enjoying uh, you know, playing piano and learning, I would imagine to sense patterns is probably a good way yeah. to, to help a four year old to, to play stuff
1: by ear, you know, right. hear a song and go to the piano and figure it out. So, you know, other than those kind of cool things and being able to play music games and things like that, I guess this is the first audio project I ever did. I, I was really into Pink Floyd at a young age and on, on the wall, there's, a, there's a song empty spaces where in the left track, there's a backwards message. And like you can hear it very faintly at a, I think it's the left speaker during empty spaces, and it's you know garbled nonsense sounding. I remember wanting to figure out what they were saying, and so I took the audio tape and I actually like took a pencil and un- unraveled the magnetic material and flipped it backwards and re-taped it with Scotch tape, like really not knowing what I was doing. No one told me how to do this. I just was like playing around with it, and I couldn't believe that it worked. I it. It totally worked. I played the tape and I heard the backwards message. And I was like, I was, I was sold after that on working with sound. It just was awesome. I was, I think I was 11 when I did that, something like that. I was pretty young. In what way did these two worlds
0: kind of convolve? not convalesce, but how did they converge? Uh, The idea of, you enjoying sound engineering and putting sounds together and figuring them out, plus your interest in fish. Where did that intersect?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I got involved with Fishnet pretty early on because of my brother, and my I ended up meeting a lot of those guys at uh, my my brother at a graduation party in '95, and he, like all of all the Fishnet people were there, and like so that's when I met them. And then who were they? Are they? Knew, like, who who was there? charlie dirksen and like zizix and and marcy from and and ellis noah cole and uh i mean like there was there was a ton of people there was it was a big party mm-hmm. so then i'm you know i went to school in dc I went, and noah and marcy lived down there and we ended up like going to the hampton shows together and i stayed with them and like when we went to the Hampton shows, we just, I stayed with all the fishnet people. Which Hampton shows? What year is this? This was 90. So 96 through 98. Okay. 96, 97, 98. 96 was just a one show. And then 97 was a a two show. And then I think it was a, it was 98, three. I don't know. 98 was
0: two. I remember from Hampton comes alive. It was the back-to-back shows.
1: Whatever it was, it was, um, those were amazing. Those were like, those are on my list of talking about today, in fact, but <laughs> so I already knew them and they knew I played guitar and they knew I worked with sound and stuff like that. I had a band at the time, we, you know, I, I played and and they went and, and saw the band and, and so fast forward to, and I've been in touch with Charlie, I've been friends with Charlie and he, you know, he like came to, came to events of mine, like engagement party and, and whatever. So someone had sent Charlie uh, a tape that hadn't been circulated. This was the Penny Post show. that it was 12590. And this was back in September of 16, I believe. And at the time, my dad had recently passed away and I was starting my own like sound business. And Charlie was like, hey, can you do anything with this? And I was like, totally. So coming from the era of tape trading, I mean, it was like having a good sounding show was like gold. It really you know, it, was. And it was I, just awesome.
0: Yeah, you know? I brought this up on previous episodes that I think we we take it for granted now that almost everything that Fish has ever recorded that used to be on physical media is now accessible in your pocket. I don't know if I can call it a lost art but there's certainly a nostalgic twinge to it to the idea of you were just talking about of finding a tape that has the initials SBD next to it or at least a first generation of a good audience recording there is a
1: mystique about it and it was like you you held the best shows as bait to get like other really good sounding shows I'm not going to lie. I mean, like in the same sense that the accuracy of nailing all the composed sections has like has entered a new era, so to speak. So has a lot of this other stuff. And it like the changes to things like collecting tapes and being able to get the whole catalog at the touch of a button. I've asked myself if what I've gotten is into fish if it was like today. And I don't think I would there was something like underground about the tape trading and collecting that you were a part of something cool that not a lot of people knew about. But if you did know somebody that knew about it, it was like you were in like you were immediately friends with them. And it just, I, don't, I can't explain it. it just was Well,
0: like- I think, I, I think a lot of it has to do with a personality type. And of course, fish fans have all different personality types, but it's not surprising to me that a lot of fish fans who I've met are very much into Tolkien or George R.R. R. Martin or Star Wars, you know, all these kind of science fiction fantasy ideas where authors create a closed world where there's always more to learn, but you kind of have to do your own research a little bit, and then you feel some sense of ownership over it. I think that's a huge part of it, because when you find a tape, like Ian's farm, for example, or Amy's farm, that... Where the tapes that I remember having were pristine quality, but you could still hear the dogs barking in the background, I think, of Ian's farm. It's there's just something like you feel like you're there, and you're not gonna find it anywhere else. You're not gonna find it at Tower Records or Strawberries or wherever else you look. You're you're only gonna find it through your own perseverance and contacts. And I think that has a sense of ownership as opposed to today, like you were just saying, where anyone could download an app. Anyone who has fingers can find a show and it's almost, you're almost paralyzed by
1: choice. You also couldn't skip like the concept of skipping songs. Yeah. Like blew my mind when, when people started trading shows on CD, I was like, wait, there was definitely a sense of like, I loved skipping sparkle or whatever, but (laughs) there was something about having to listen to the whole show. You know, like about just you just you you put on the tape and you just listen to it. And like, yeah, occasionally you could you could master the art of the fast forward play game. But like, I bet I can get the fast forward right to the end of my soul. <laughs> you know, yeah.
0: Whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to take your medicine. You know, it's like the five seven ninety four show at the Bomb Factory, the Tweezer Fest. They open the set with Loving Cup. Right. And then they played Sparkle before Tweezer. I think I have that right without checking. But on tape, you couldn't just fast forward to the tweezer. You had to take your medicine. You know, it's good stuff. You had to listen to Loving Cup and you had to listen to Sparkle before you get to what you're there for, really. So I think you're right. I think there's something to that. And so you brought up that you received a show from January 25th, 1990. Um, I have to ask you, going back to that idea of remastering and then releasing a previously uncirculated Fish show, What is it like to be one of the only people in the entire community, arguably to make it dramatic on Earth, who has access to something that previously no one has and finds it. And I would imagine a lot of people find it very valuable. Is there any sort of thrill to that? Do you do it for the thrill or is it for a huge thrill? Yeah,
1: no, there's absolutely a huge thrill in it. And I don't know if the thrill would be the same again, if the context were transposed to have me having not had the background that I did with the tapes and stuff, because at the time when we were collecting tapes and listening to them, and this was back when people would sit and listen to music as an activity, you know, like we would be like, Hey, let's listen to that show. And I described like my entire sit-
0: high school experience.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it was like, you know, it's so times have changed. Let's just put it that way. So, yeah. and people have changed. I mean, I'm I'm a lot older. I don't have time to do that anymore, but like that was great you know to be able to to put on a show and sit around and listen to it we'd banter about stuff like man don't you wish you could just like squeegee off the hiss (laughs) or like or or like get rid of that like what is that buzz that i'm hearing or i i wish that you could turn the bass up so like we used to fantasize like literally used to fantasize about being able to take these tapes and like make them sound like the way that they should sound. Now I can kind of do that. And so when I go back and take these tapes that I, I mean, I didn't, a lot of them, I didn't listen to at the time because they weren't, they weren't there, but like the same era of the tapes that I was listening to when I first started listening to the band and stuff and actually being able to, lo- you know, load the sound of the computer and see it visually in full color, especially given my, the synesthesia thing. Not that they have any correlation with each other, but it's still like I see things in colors anyway. So like when you're doing a spectral analysis of whatever it is, being able to be like, there's the hiss and then remove it or, you know, there's the buzz. I can actually see the line at that frequency that's causing that. Go in there and and take a paintbrush and remove it and have it sound just as good. So like there's the glass half full of the digital stuff like you could you'd never be able to do that before.
0: And for people who are interested, what are some of the shows that they could find on fish.in or uh, write-ups on fish.net that you have had a hand in remastering?
1: I think that the the big one that got the most press was the Colorado 88 completion, which was um, Colorado 88 was one of the live albums that the band released. Those shows came from a set of tapes that um, a now friend of mine, Neil, like page had a couple of the band members had lived in Colorado at the time and they crashed at his place and they like used his deck to copy the tapes that the, that Paul had done or whatever. And so he made copies of the tapes for himself and then like, those were the only copies that existed and somehow the like the band didn't have the copies. And so they ended up having to go back to him and be like, so, you know, those tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he had all those originals. And so he was the one that provided the band, those tapes that they ended up releasing Colorado 88 with, but they didn't release the complete shows. It was just a mix. It was like a mix of highlights that they released right. out of these. I don't know. It was like, four or five shows six shows maybe so neil had gotten in touch with charlie i can't remember the the how they got connected but charlie reached out to me because i'd already done a couple things for them and um he was like this is a big one and so that and i worked i worked on for a long time on those that those shows where i really learned how to like fix everything up cuz i went through three or four drafts of them where I was, you know, I was posting them to Charlie and he was like, well, let's try to do it a little bit more like this, giving me some feedback. And um eventually I, I got them to, in my opinion, sound really good. They do. And then in in the end, I think, I mean, I actually think they sound just as good as the the released stuff. Is your mix the basis of the album that
0: was officially released?
1: What I release is the remainder of what they were. Oh, I
0: see. Got
1: it. Uh whoever did the the cleanup work on their end did it for them. I did it for the rest of the stuff. <laughs> you did it for everyone else. <laughs> right. For the rest of the songs that like didn't make it on the Colorado 88 album. Right. Didn't circulate really. When was this show played? So before we get to the show
0: itself, let's talk about the context in which it was played uh, summer, 1994. And then we'll get into kind of the meat of the first set which is Gamehenge, of course. But looking at 1994, at least the summer, Fish played 29 shows during the summer tour and 124 shows overall in the year. And with only a few exceptions, it seems like the summer tour, at least to my eyes, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong or add your own thoughts, it was when they sort of made the jump to play large outdoor sheds, as opposed And amphitheaters on the East Coast, uh, most of which are venues that the fans today are familiar with, like Jones Beach, for example, Holmdale, uh, of course, Great Woods, Walnut Creek, uh, SPAC. But as you go farther west and away from the Northeast and New England, especially... Like they didn't go farther west than Colorado in 94, at least in the summer of 94, but they were still playing mid midsize outdoor venues and theaters like Red Rocks, uh, the state theater in Kalamazoo. I, th- I got corrected on this one. I think it's the Murat Amphitheater. I think I pronounced it wrong in an earlier episode. Uh, that's in Indianapolis. So it, I saw it as like an in-between year of growth for fish where they kind of tailored their tour to their relative popularity in each part of the country, as opposed to now where Live Nation just kind of sets up 10 or 12 venues where they're going to do two or three nights a piece. And I think it's very telling that the band started the year uh, at the Beacon Theater in New York City, and then they sold out Madison Square Garden by the end of the year, on December 30th.
1: Which I remember, I remember that at the time, marveling at that. Like, I, I consciously no, con- thought that. Yeah. The contrast. The yes. Because it was, I mean, I saw a lot of shows in 94, but, I mean, I was with the band. It's the, the year I saw the most shows, I think 94, or 95, that those mm-hmm. two, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely a transition year for them in a ton of different respects. I mean, they had, they had new gear, like ton of new gear with all this new gear that they had. I mean, As you know, Page got his piano the year before. Yeah, in the spring of 1993, right? So from there, it's just every tour, they were making major additions to the the sound. So that in tandem with having to learn how to play these different sized rooms. And the reason that Fish had such a, over time, like smooth transition going from the bars to the clubs, to the theaters, is because of these sort of, these types of years where they would have these like one step up begin to get peppered in with the tours. And they would sort of learn not just how to play to the room itself, but how to use the sound of the room as part of the show. You can really hear it too, because if you listen to a lot of the shows in 93, at least the soundboard ones, you can hear a lot of digital delay. You know, like if you listen to the Roxy 93 live fish show is a really good example, it. that's the first show that page uses piano. The, uh, The delay on their vocals is crazy. It's absurd. You know, it just doesn't but that's that's what the that's what they used for the room. You know, that in tandem with them recording a live one very consciously, you know, and them going into it like, let's just record the whole year, you know, on on 24-track digital. And digital recording was still kind of new. We'll make a, a mix out of it, make a make a mix show, you know. That was so premeditated that I think that not only it not only affected their choice of venue that they selected to to book, affected what songs they chose to play throughout the tours. It affected uh, things like their stage game, you know, things like playing Gamehenge twice within a month or whatever it was. Yep.
0: And they stopped doing things like the big ball jam. Yeah. Right. And so speaking of the songs that they were playing, uh, Hoist was released On March 29th, 94, so that's just a couple months before today's show. And so the summer tour was filled with tracks from that album, uh, including, but certainly not limited to Sample in a Jar, Down with Disease, Julius, Wolfman's Brother. If you went to three or four shows in 1994, you would almost hear out of those four songs, you would certainly hear all of them. I think in three shows, it's pretty fair to say without literally checking the stats and tonight's show was the first night of a two night run at great woods. And by the time I saw them in around in 97 was my first show, but really kicked it up later in the nineties. A lot of these venues that we just mentioned had become regular stops on summer tour, like these larger venues like Jones beach or SPAC, for example, And they were playing large venues throughout the country by the late 90s. You know, it was a given that Fish wouldn't play anything less than, you know, the big shed in your area. So what was it like seeing them in the early years of large venues as opposed to when I hopped on where
1: it was more taken for granted? Every year their venues would. I mean, so I started listening to them in in 92, started going to shows in 93 and. You know, and like, and listened and went to shows every year consistently. I was at like every New Year's show until 2000, you know, and so I was pretty heavy 1.0 like tour goer. I think that like uh, uh, every year there were two things that my friends and I, when we would go to the shows, would kind of like, I used the word Marvel before, but we're in awe of, I guess how much better they got musically with every tour. Like they, they just like, especially for me as a, a learning guitar player, Trey played the guitar in my mind, the way that one should play the guitar. Like it was <laughs> like, he like did it correctly. It was like, that's the way you're supposed to play that instrument is the way that I kind of viewed it at the time, every tour, he was better and better and the band was tighter and tighter and like you know, and then the, the bass got higher in the mix and stuff and the sound was getting better. The other thing that we were marveling at is how big the venues were getting. You know, and I, I just, I remember seeing them, I was at New Year's 93 at the at the Centrum. We were like, I can't believe they're playing for like 15,000 people. It just like, it blew our mind at the time. Set one.
0: All right, so let's talk about 7894. Uh, the show that you chose for today, which starts with a first set, I hesitate to to use the word composed, but certainly a planned ahead version of Game Henge, fully narrated with every, all the bells and whistles are in it. Before we get into the song by song breakdown, I'd like to ask you what Game Henge meant to you at the time and what does it mean to you now? cause Loaded I'll tell question. you. Yeah, I'll t- you know what? I'll take the brunt. I'll I'll start with I'll answer it first and then you okay. can jump in with yours. I think at its essence Gamehenge is the bane of all fish songs for the first I don't know 8 years of their career. I think it was a good uh toolbox for them. Uh it's the ultimate white whale. A fish. I think people even now say that, oh, my God, do you think they'll ever do Gamehenge again? You know, it's never far from people's thoughts. And I think it was elemental in their career in that it started by creating this unbreakable bond between the band and its fans. Because as we as I brought up earlier, that whole idea of a closed world created by the author, whether it's the Lord of the Rings or any number of other fantasy science fiction, this is Fish's version of that, where even if you're into Fish, you have to be into Gamehenge to get all the references in a multitude of songs. So it kind of you're in on a secret, I think is what is what a big appeal of it is. Uh, lots of fans, you know, they say how like all of Fish is kind of an inside joke, and I think Gamehenge like reinforces that in a very tangible degree. At the same time, it's a very simple, silly little fairy tale that. In my opinion, and I know you may disagree, it's got holes all over the place. <laughs> Plot wise, it was written by a college student. Uh, Theme wise, same thing, but it does create a starting point. Um, I think people get into Fish for all sorts of reasons, where people, like you mentioned way earlier, that people love progressive rock and that Fish has that kind of appeal. And musical dexterity, I think the sense of collegiality among fans that there's like the party scene and it's just plain fun to go. The storytelling and the inside jokes or just a combination, all of them. And Gamehenge is the storytelling inside jokes to the max. Uh, And so now it's just kind of like it's a thing that's part of Fish, but it's not a big part of Fish anymore. I'd say it's retired at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. For you in 1994, what was it?
1: Oh, man. At that point, I was already a big fan, like going to multiple live shows, like had a collection already. So, I mean, I I was well aware of what Gamehenge was because my brother had sat me down and like played the man who stepped in yesterday and gone through the whole story with me and stuff. Coupled with the fact that I'm, as you mentioned before, I'm one of your typical fish fans who's into... Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and into like Joseph Campbell's hero of the thousand faces and all like that type of stuff. Like as, as, um, storytelling mechanisms, I was, I was very into, uh, I agree with you that there's something kind of JV about the, you know, that yeah. it's, it's a little unpolished. I, I sort of get the sense that he had something that was a project that was due and ended up like, pulling a bunch of different stuff together that he had written and like putting that together. I have that's the sort of,
0: same exact feeling one time when I was in college, my roommate was a film major and he was the type of person who put off, put off, put off all of his projects and then rushed. I can the totally end.
1: see Trey being like that. Yeah. I mean, he got booted out of school for what a joke or something for playing a prank on somebody with like, with a, yeah, like for, with a hand, with a human hand. Yeah, yeah. With like a, that's gross. So yeah. You know, like dude screwed around. I've done it myself with papers, you know, in, sure. in my high school, you know, where I take like a bunch of old papers. that didn't like take all the best sections and you make a mix or whatever. So I think the best example of that is the fact that possum is on there.
0: Like yeah, it's so really wildly out of place.
1: It. Yeah. Cause it was a Jeff Holdsworth song completely. And like, clearly they just added that first verse in and stuck it on there. Like we need to add more time for something. Cause it was like, there's nothing to do with game. man. <laughs> And at the same time, as we can kind of toss it
0: off as what is very likely kind of a last minute project and throw things in for running time, it's also very uniquely special. You know, totally. I think I got to double check this, but I think they've only done a complete game hand run through four times. Five. Five. Okay. I think this was the last one, right? The yep. one that we're talking about today. Yeah.
1: And it was, what a what a gift it was.
0: So the set starts off with Llama. Which, my understanding from reading the fish.net song history and probably way back to the fish compendium by Dean Budnick is that it's not directly related to the Gamehenge saga as part of the narrative, but it's kind of it takes place in a future Gamehenge looking back. And I thought it was very funny that even at three minutes, like Llama is usually around four minutes or so. At three minutes, there's the when you corrected me, I called it the loop. kind of sound this woo 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 it's like police siren sort of yep. thing that will eventually melt into n2o which will then lead us to gamehenge all of llama isn't even four minutes long it's a great it's, it's a fiery
1: version though it's good
0: yeah any show that kicks off with llama is you know i'm in sign me yeah. up and then they get into n2o which Mike starts as like the dentist role where he says, you know, feeling a little drowsy, open wide, don't bite, don't bite. And so right from the start, something is up, right? Did you have that sense in the crowd? If you remember at the time,
1: because I've only seen the the moment I knew something was up was when Trey said there's a 52 year old man sitting in a dentist chair. That was, and when he said that, I, Instantly knew what was happening because it was yeah it was a little bit weird like nitrous is a weird song yeah oh yeah with. it's like <laughs> it's one of the weirdest and so yeah it was I definitely knew something was up yeah when when that was going on. it's it's a rare song to begin with sure and he, so Trey says as you alluded
0: to there's a fifty year old man in a dentist chair and the quote that stuck out to me was welcome to the dream everybody and that's like you know everyone like a preschool teacher saying alright everyone sit on the rug you know get your juice you know it's story time Yeah. and they go right into lizards after Trey just kind of introduces all the principal characters of the story
1: and the name of this guy is Colonel Ford. Colonel Ford is looking down this long corridor as he sits in a tennis chair and he's feeling the problem. Into fantasy land, he sees this corridor opening up in front of his eyes, and he starts to pass
0: through. And as he goes through, he walks along the kind of inside of his mind, and we can all kind of go through with him through this corridor until he runs into this knight. It's leaning up against the wall. The knight turns out and introduces himself. He says, uh, "His name is Rutherford the And at this point, I was wondering if Gamehenge, if the plot of Gamehenge would work nearly as well without any narration because lizards is a beautiful song It's filled with catchy melodies it's got great sing-along lyrics that ending is one of the most beautiful beautifully written parts in all of the fish canon in my opinion i just wondered at that time if it would just work well as a song cycle as opposed to trey just jumping in in the middle in between songs with narrative
1: on the original recording of the man who stepped in yesterday during that beautiful guitar part, there's this long narration coming out of one of the speakers where he yeah. describes Rutherford the Brave, you know, jumping in the water and the suit of arms and beyond just the regular lyrics of the song, which gives a little bit of exposition to, you know, to what's going on there. So without that, and, you know, he's obviously not going to like do that narration in the middle of the song or whatever. Right. So that kind of gets, gets skipped. And so I can understand over time where that would kind of feel like you're you're missing out on that first part of the like character building parts of the story.
0: And I think that's kind of as we move on to the next narration before Tila and Wilson, I think that might be kind of the flaw, the fatal flaw of any rock opera, generally speaking. Whether it's you know I mentioned I'm a big fan of the Who, where Pete Townsend wrote Tommy or Lifehouse or Quadrophenia, Roger Waters and The Wall, where It makes sense to the person writing it, but just it doesn't there's not enough there. And you have to find the exact right medium to express what's actually happening, as opposed to just playing a bunch of killer songs in a row.
1: I mean, it's probably the reason that they stopped doing it.
0: So they move on to Tila, which even for a ballad, there's some incredible shredding toward the very end. That unbelievable part when you said As a younger fan, you said that this is the way the guitar should be played. I had that same thought (laughs) at the end of Tila. It just kills. And then things start to come together when uh, Trey takes an extra narration to talk about the revolution. He introduces who Wilson and Tila are. And then it turns in in my head, at least into an actual story. And then when they played Wilson, we're not fully at the Wilson chant just yet. I feel like this was on the precipice of when the Wilson chant was being developed by the audience. Do you remember whether or not people were chanting it?
1: This was the year of this type of thing, like becoming solidified. You know the stash clap was forming at the same time as this. I was at the MSG show at twelve thirty ninety four, and that was the first show where I actually heard the Wilson chant in full effect, and it was it was really cool at the time. It was like, but no, they were still just doing the dun it, dun Yeah, yeah, and the Wilson chant obviously like it it just it comes from the original recording of the manuscript from yesterday when you can hear you know they do the like
0: Wilson. Yeah. It, that was pretty good. That <laughs> was pretty good. So, but yeah, so they, they, after Wilson, there's more, na- there's narration between every song, after every single song. Trey is our narrator. They played ACDC Bag, which is a pretty standard ACDC bag with a killer outro. Although I thought to myself, is it fair to call anything standard in this set, which is by definition, in my opinion, a special set, capital S. In both words, you know, this is kind of what at least I hope for when I go to see fish. But you had a different read on ACDC bag, right?
1: You found something really special about it. Yeah, ACDC bag is uh, there's that was the moment. So just to to backtrack a little bit, anyone who watched, you can see this happen. Anyone who watched the dinner in a movie of the show, Mike ends up having a some type of a sound issue with his bass. I'm not sure what it is, but in in the middle of lizards, and he he motions towards uh one of the stage techs and they give him a different bass and so like the bass cuts out in little lizards for like 20 seconds or something like that starts back up i think it's during the first chorus or something but the bass that they gave him was a modulus bass as opposed to his languedoc bass that he you know used standard at the time a modulus bass is what he currently what he switched to back in 97 back in the like funk days um, yeah, the winter, I think the winter 97, the show that was on Slip, Stitch and Pass, I
0: think was one of his first shows playing with the Modulus, if I remember. It was. Th-
1: those were from the Europe shows from yeah. the summer of 97. And that's oh, okay. when he was, when they were like, you know, he was traveling with, presumably he traveled with a different base. And so he mm-hmm. got that base for that. But um, in any event, the that ACDC bag is like the first time I was able to distinguish each instrument separately in a live context. And I'm not sure if it was as a result of them just playing tighter, playing on a you know, a bigger stage, uh, performing differently because they knew they were being recorded or if it was because of the switch to the modulus bass. But I was like, I, I just looked at my friend I was like, they sound incredible. They sounded so good. And that bag is when I kind of I I realized it. I was like the I was like, God damn, they fucking rip. And it
0: really it really came through. I agree with you toward the end of bag. And the rest of the set is served so well. Next up is Forbin's Mockingbird, which is, I think, overall, my favorite of all the songs and maybe the best um, mix of kind of plot exposition and musical dexterity put together. I love these songs. Whenever they it at a show, I'm just automatically it's one of the best shows I've ever seen <laughs> just because they played Forbins and Mockingbird. More narration. Uh, and then they get to the sloth. And in my notes, I wrote that, again, this is standard, but jams or exceptional versions of songs are irrelevant in this set. It's not the point. Right. You know, we're not there at this point to hear the best sloth ever. Like you're, I don't think that that's relevant. You know, it's the point is the narrative whole that the band is kind of treating their hometown crowd to something that everybody knows is special because by 94, as you mentioned, everyone's kind of in on it.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, for me and obviously the band too, the sound was the star of the night. I just, they like, and again, I'm not sure if it, if it was due to anything that I listed before in particular, or just a conglomeration of all of that. But when sound is the primary focus of what the band is working on because of a live album or whatever it is, sign me up because like, that's why I got into the band.
0: They closed the set with McGrupp and then divided sky where Trey explains that divided sky is a prayer, a quote unquote prayer that everyone in game Engine used to do before the story ever took place. And what a divided
1: sky. This is, if you, just for anyone listening, if you've not heard this version of divided sky, listen to it. It's yes. fire. <laughs> I just, it's so good. They, as soon as you think it's going to end, they do like three more.
0: It's not even too much of a good thing. It's just a lot of a good thing.
1: So good. It's one of my favorite versions. Set
0: two. Set two is more of a conventional fish set in terms of the set list and that there's no narrative is nothing like uh, nothing special in terms of um, a cohesive whole, but it's a hell of a set. Uh, It opens with rift and on the fish the Fishin, Fish.in recording, this is the first thing I noticed. I'm glad we're talking about the sound so much that the first set is an audience recording. The second set on this website or re-listen is a
1: soundboard. Which is, again, that that I assumed that it was the audience one because I think it was for a long time. Soundboards didn't circulate at the show, Um To the point where when dinner in a movie was broadcast, actually recorded the audio from it because I was excited to have (laughs) the sound like a, a soundboard version of the show.
0: After Rift, they play Sample in a Jar, which is perfect for 1994. I thought it sounds like the album version, but with much more verve. And I listened to it again today before our recording and man, they are having such a good time playing Sample in a Jar, the Hoist songs in general. And it's just Gamehenge, I thought, the whole set. It's such a delight, but it definitely requires patience. and it requires a bit of a bit more organization than I think the band is used to. And this sample in a jar to me, it's just like, all right, let's cut loose. You know, Fishman is going nuts on the symbols. He's in love with his uh, China symbol for this whole year, I think. this version of sample is like, all right, now we're here for a
1: party. The first set was a
0: performance. Now it's a party.
1: It's a good way of describing it. This, the second set was awesome. I mean, this show is just, is, is probably my favorite regular show. Like with, you know, I'm not talking about big Cypress or, or festivals or things like that. This it's between this and one of the Hamptons, but uh Man, the combo of getting a game henge in the first set and getting a second set like this with the versions of the songs that are in there, it's just.
0: Well, the versions of the songs next up is Reba, which is a great version. It's, first of all, there's Manteca teases all over it, which I think is just kind of a, all right, move it up a notch. We got Manteca. It's just so smooth with a great tight jam. And I was wondering your take on the next song, which is Yerushalayim Shell Zahav, which is a rarity now, without a doubt. I thought this was a very odd placement. You know, I can understand if they wanted to play a cool down song. I wonder why they picked this one. Any ideas or what it was like? Because they played this only 12 times total
1: and they haven't played it since New Year's Eve 94. I'm guessing that it's just I, I know that at the time they were focusing a lot on their vocals especially in, as you know, in some of the bluegrass stuff later in the year, they ended up touring with Reverend Jeff Mosier, who at the time was, I think they were taking lessons with him on singing vocals because when they were recording Hoist, I think Fishman actually had some legit singing parts for the first time on the album. And I think that he actually liked the experience, something along those lines where they where Fishman was no longer just going to be the Henrietta mocking himself singing bit with a vacuum. He actually wanted to take part in the in the vocals of the songs for real. They were into doing things like taking lessons from from professionals and whatever, you know, like they learned when they were toured with Santana, they learned how to do a lot of the Latin sounding stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, Fishman is credited with the Shirley Temple in the, <laughs> the liner notes of hoist for Wolfman's brother. And I just remembered as we were talking, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav is performed at the end of demand, and up next is It's Ice, which is a flawless performance of the composed part. And then right when they get to the jam, it's it could go anywhere. This is really great funk. This is like edgy funk
1: with the piano, uh, the funky piano with like yeah. the wah in the background. Yep. Which leads the way on this, and the drums drop out for a little bit. Excellent, it's a killer killer version of this. Yep,
0: and the centerpiece, in my opinion, of the second set is stash, which I'm guessing most fans are familiar with since it's the version that was eventually used on a live one, and there are parts in this stash that for me it's the template for all stashes that I heard after. You know, to me, every stash should compare to the version on a live one. And now it was different for me. Even though I've heard this show before, I didn't listen to it as intently as I did for this episode of the podcast. It's just fun to hear it in a sequence as a, of a show, another show, as opposed to hearing it on a live one.
1: Right. You know yeah, what I mean? it's, it's And it's seen, it's funny because when you're listening to the show and you hear it in the sequence of the actual show, it almost sounds out of context. Like you're almost like... Wait, that sounds just like the. Oh, it is right. I know this, <laughs> yeah. but not from here. Right. I love that. I love Stash in general. I have a place in my heart for Stash, as you may know or may not know, or anyone listening may not know or know. In the in the original Fish Companion and on the Fishnet site, there's a a, a truncated version of it now. But I'm the one that wrote the song history for Stash. I was studying jazz at the time, and and I was like. You know, learning a lot about what was going on when Trey was writing Stash. With a live one, I think that they were trying to, at the time, they were trying to cover a lot of different, in, in the, the live album release, they're trying to, much like Picture Nectar sort of was a genre coverage album showing what they could do in terms of their spread of, of different genres. This was sort of like, this was going to be a lot of people's referent for what they sounded like as a live band. And so I think they wanted to hit on all fronts in terms of their different types of songs and and stuff that they do. I think they were
0: successful. I mean, how many people cite a live one as either what got them into fish or what kind of set up their fandom for loving all those songs, you know, like when you bring up slave to the traffic light, at least me, my first memory, my first thought of it is, Oh, a live one.
1: Well, just hearing hearing an actual officially released live like soundboard best sounding you thing you'd ever heard from them basically <laughs> and being able to skip the you know like to the song you wanted it just was awesome yeah so after that beautiful incredible
0: all-time great stash was next the in my opinion the most beautiful incredible all-time great segues which is you enjoy myself into Frankenstein, back into you enjoy myself, unbelievable, how do they do this? I mean, Trey just starts playing the riff for Frankenstein, I mean, then this is after a flawless composed you enjoy myself by the way,
1: and it just as go, a killer, yeah,
0: yeah, it is so good. it just sounded so intuitive to me and yet spontaneous,
1: yeah, and it's and they're so tight at the time that it's just it's like a pleasure to listen to, you know. Yeah, you're right. It sounds premeditated.
0: But it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like it does and it doesn't at the same time, because when when Trey starts with the, uh, you know, that main Frankenstein riff that was very much in my DNA from watching Beavis and Butthead for, you know, the year or two before I got into fish uh, that he and it's you could hear Fishman pick on it, pick up on it immediately. And then he does it maybe two or three more times before I don't remember this on the dinner and a movie, but I could just picture Trey looking around, giving a little nod and maybe holding up one finger. And then they all just jam right into Frankenstein. Once again, a flawless performance of Frankenstein, where it's also the only time that Fishman, at least to my ears, has ever extended the drum solo. So I'm going home happy as a drummer.
1: Yeah, it's uh, man. It's such a it's it's such a good second set. And the lights were down at this point. I mean, the the uh, the sun was down, the lights were up and like, you know, you're in full second set mode at this point. It was just Everyone was in bliss because you had just gotten a game hedge. You were getting <laughs> yeah. like one song after another of just like a killer set list. And killer performances, not just on paper, but
0: like the meat was there. Yeah. Yeah. And to close up the whole show, not the whole show, but the whole set, it was a great pairing of Julius and Golgi. You know, it's something that you would see at a show today. Great closers. The encore they came out with Nellie Kane, as you brought up, they were very much into their bluegrass vocal harmonies. Which yep. Nelly Kane is my favorite of all the bluegrass songs they play. And they closed with Cavern, which is, you know, the classic, one of their better set or show closers. And it almost always means that the show is over, or at least that it's ending soon. So walking out of the show, what was going on? Who were you with? And what were you thinking?
1: There's so many funny stories about this. So I I was at summer camp and I was a CIT that year. So I was 16. And at the time you know, like when you're CIT at the camp, I went to, you don't get, you don't get to like go out to concerts at night and stuff. You're just basically like a glorified camper. You know? Right. But a counselor in training. Right. But before the summer I preemptively hit, me and a friend of mine had called the camp director. My brother was friends with his son. And like, I had said, said there's this concert Um, just wanted to like, preemptively get your permission to, to go to this thing and so we get like we went to the top in terms of permission got his permission and like the cit director at the time was so pissed because like we had already you know preemptively gotten permission to go to the show and we were the only two and everyone else had to st- stay in at camp or whatever i, re- I remember it as- like it was especially special because of that it was like and we went with all the um All the older counselors and I, my, I went with my brother was there and it was a lot of fun. So yeah, walking out of the show afterwards was like that feeling of what the hell just happened? Like what that really just happened? If there's a
0: show that can make you feel totally fine and content even while waiting to get out of a Great Woods parking lot, I would imagine this would be it because that's the worst parking lot I've ever waited
1: to get out of after a fish show. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So yeah, it didn't even uh, didn't even affect that. So pretty good show. So Jeff Goldberg, thank you so much for being
0: on Attendance Bias. You picked a hell of a show to talk about. I haven't had a lot of conversations about GameHenge yet so far on this podcast, so I'm really glad we got the opportunity. So I
1: just want to say thanks again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. had a good time.
0: And that's it for today's episode with Jeff Goldberg. Now, it's pretty obvious that Jeff is – I don't know if anyone is really an expert on fish, but he certainly knows his way around the band. He knows about their history, he knows about their gear, and what's most impressive to me is his ability to take facts and discussion points and place them within a larger pattern and narrative about the band in context of their whole history. So as a result, I'm not surprised that Jeff and I threw out a lot of facts and a lot of information about today's show during our discussion. But of course, as always happens, there's points of confusion, points of correction, and that leads to today's Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check! Jeff says that he first got into Fish through their albums, and at the time that he got into the band, Rift had just been released. He remembers that the album was released in February of 1993, and he's exactly right. Rift was released on February 2nd, 1993. Happy Groundhog's Day, everybody! Jeff's first show was on April 30th, 1993, at what he remembers as being called the Campus Center at the University of Hartford. According to Fish.net, it was called the Sports Center. Jeff says that because it was a tour to promote the Rift album, the band played a lot of songs from Rift. He's exactly right about this, too. In fact, the band played seven tracks off the album. Those would be, lengthwise, Maze, Fast Enough for You?, The Horse, Silent in the Morning, Maze, Sparkle, and all of these songs, seven in total, constitute almost half of the Rift album. When talking about the band's accuracy and nailing composed sections of their songs, the memory of Trey restarting a botched You Enjoy Myself was mentioned. Jeff guessed that it happened during the band's 20th anniversary show at the Fleet Center, which was played on December 2nd, 2003, As a matter of fact, it happened much earlier in the year. The botched You Enjoy Myself was actually played on January 3rd, 2003 at the Hampton Coliseum. Also about Hampton, Jeff talks with nostalgia about how many times he hung out with the Fish.net crew at Hampton in their shows at the mid and late 90s. Although he couldn't exactly remember how many times the band played the Coliseum toward the middle and late 90s. The fact check on that is... The band played one night in 1996, two nights in 1997, two nights in 1998. While talking about Gamehenge, I thought that the band had played the whole narrative four times. Jeff immediately corrects me and knows right away that it's been performed five times. He's correct, and those performances were March 2nd, 1998 at Nectars, October 13th, 1991, my ninth birthday, at the North Shore Surf Club in Olympia, Washington, March 22nd, 1993 at the Crest Theater in Sacramento, California. June 26, 1994 at the Municipal Auditorium in Charleston, West Virginia. That is the famous Game Hoist show. And then, of course, today's show, July 8th, 1994 at Great Woods. Jeff mentioned that Fish brought the Reverend Jeff Moser on tour with them later in 1994 during the fall. For those who may be unaware, Jeff Mosier was a member of the Aquarium Rescue Unit, who was in Fish's orbit as early as 1990. Mosier joined Fish on tour for a period during the fall of 1994. Mosier helped the band arrange themselves on acoustic instruments. He also helped them solidify their interest in and performances of bluegrass and American Roots songs. To hear some of Mozier's guest appearance spots during this time on stage, check out any Fish show from November 16th to November 20th, 1994. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Jeff Goldberg for joining me today, Fish.net for really coming through for today's fact check, and Fish.in for providing the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app. Also, please find Attendance Bias on Twitter, Instagram, anywhere on social media. You can reach out to me for a free sticker. I'm happy to give them out. Spread the word however you can about the show. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.